All right, welcome back to the Hale Institute podcast. Uh, this is Tommy Klein, the director of scholarly initiatives at the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College, um, run also by Jeff Schaefer, our director. And uh, check out our website uh, for regular content, and uh, you should be subscribed to this podcast by now. Um, our new special guest, we have a new one each week, um, and today we have Glenn Moots, my good friend, uh, who is a professor of uh, political science and political philosophy at Northwood University, right, Glenn? Yes, sir. All right, and that is in, where is that in Michigan? I know it's in We Michigan, are in right? Midland, Michigan, which is Midland. about two hours north of Detroit or Ann Arbor. Gotcha, gotcha. Many of you will have read um, Glenn's stuff that is, is more popular stuff at Public Discourse, Law and Liberty. Uh, you've written for American Reformer before, too. I have, course, yep. So. Uh, Joe and, and I had, Joe and I had the, yes. uh, why is Daryl Hart committing Presby and Presby violence <laughs> essay? And then I reviewed uh, Cooper and Dyer's book on uh, natural law and the founding. Yes, we're, at, we're actually having uh, both of them on at some point here, too, so. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, good, good book. Uh, you know, I have a, a few uh, Protestant criticisms, but a very good book. Um, and your and your review was great. So, Glenn, you, uh, you've been at Northwood for a while and your um, specialty, I would say, you can correct me on this if, if I'm wrong, is on, uh, you know, politics and American Protestantism is how how I would put it. Um, but primarily, you know, in the in the founding era. Right. So I would say from Reformation. So, you know, I've mm -hmm. done things on, you know, 16th, 17th century and then into America and preferably everyone I talk about is dead. Yes. It's a, it's it's, a good rule to live by. Yeah. It's important that we, we're, we're not doing journalism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, your, your book that, that people may have read, too, is called Politics Reformed, the Anglo-American Legacy of Covenant Theology. And I read this book years ago. Uh, I, was, I was in seminary at Westminster, found it in the stacks somewhere. And, you know, for, for me and I think for many of our friends that, that we talk to in our nerd circles about this kind of stuff, um, you know, this was, this was sort of an original source code for me. Um, and exposed me to a lot of material that I was otherwise unfamiliar with at that time. Um, and it's been recently re-released in paperback uh, by Missouri Press. Uh, was it was that last year? I can't remember now. I think it was 22. I think it was 22. Uh, late 22. Yeah. So the, the price came down and uh, it's 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 more affordable and uh, it's 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 ready at Amazon or wherever uh, uh, finer books are sold. And you tell me there's also an audio version. There is an audio version. Apparently, Missouri has a deal with uh, something called Redwood. I forgot what it is, but they have been selling some of the rights to their books. And I, I was very excited about this. And I'll admit I haven't listened to it all the way through, but I have listened to it. And I think the guy does a pretty good job. Okay. Okay. Well, get, give everybody, for the people who are unfamiliar with this book, and they really should get it, like I said, it, it was very helpful to me a, a early on. And, um, you know, give everybody kind of the basic thesis of what you're doing with that book. Okay, so I have, there are essentially three sections to the book. The first section is a defense of political theology. So I define and defend what 
political theology is. And then in the second section, I treat the historical sources. I begin with a chapter on Calvin and Bullinger. And I end with the experience of America. And I have a chapter in there on natural law, which, you know, when I wrote this, this is a substantially reworked dissertation. I wish I could make mm -hmm. the dissertation disappear because I think the book is much, much better than the <laughs> dissertation. But, you know, whatever, that's, you're just kind of stuck with that. Eventually, you know, they want to put it out there. But, and then the last section is something that would be like a literature review in surveying, you know, how the covenant as a political idea has been addressed by political theorists. And as you know, mm -hmm. really, it, it, it's shocking. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's that scene in uh, in uh, Ratatouille where one of the characters <laughs> says, you know, you could fill books with the things I don't know. And one of the <laughs> things that a lot of political theorists don't know, and you could fill a lot of books with them, is the significance of Protestant political theology. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that last section, I talk a little bit about Strauss. Of course, there's not much to say, but uh, I, I talk a fair amount about Vogelin. And also uh, Daniel Elisar, who mm. just did so much uh, to help us. And there are problems with Elisar. I have another chapter on Elisar in the Ashgate Companion to Federalism. But uh, that's the last part. And, and then there's some application. And it's, you know, it's uh, just some kind of, you know, speculation at the end about what a, what a covenanted political order might look like. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and I'll add that some people may be surprised by that because the context of what I wrote of when I wrote it then is so much different than it is now. Mm. So, so yeah. it's, it's kind of a nice historical overview as well as making some connections in the, you know, the quote unquote literature, and then also a defense of why we should be paying attention to political theology. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been, um, you know, there has been recent, very recently, some revival of interest among Protestants in in political theology, and we can we can talk about that a bit. The uh, you know the good, the bad, and the ugly on that, and how it's going. As a you know, I see it as a sort of extension of you know the resourcement efforts that were begun by Richard Muller and everybody you know decades mm -hmm. ago, and it's finally getting. And then we went through a sort of natural law period. Oh yeah, we forgot about that. You know, <laughs> let's get back to Turretin and and people, and. Um, and now we're kind of, you know, maybe, maybe arriving at uh, a recovery of, of more direct sort of political theology, fully orb stuff. That's not just the natural law because we were feeling uh, embarrassed in front of our Catholic friends. So we decided to sort of, uh, you know, maybe quib their stuff a little bit and find a couple, you know, reformers that were available that, that said something. And then we tried to piece it together. But now it's, it's sort of, you know, it's progressed in better ways. Um, there's still a lot of work to do, but you know, what do what do you? I guess we can go ahead and talk about this. What do you see um, as the good and the and the bad of what's kind of going on with the recovery of of Protestant political theology? You know, from the reformers, uh, you know, Calvin, Zwingli, the Magisterials, and then up through their 17th century progeny. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think the more that we can recover the past the better off we are. I mean, part of that is just my kind of innate 
either either I don't know. I guess you could call it conservatism, but I'm not subscribing to it as an ideology. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not even subscribing to it as a refusal of ideology. I'm just subscribing to what I would call common sense, which is uh, I don't I don't like I don't like any year zero projects. Mm. And you know, a year zero project is some kind of biblicism. Uh, I'm very critical of uh, like Mark Knoll. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, claiming that uh, Protestants are biblicists and this sort of thing. So, so that kind of year zero biblicism, uh, well, uh, you know, Jesus says it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Paul says in Romans 13, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I want to say, well, you know, there, there are, there are existing interpretations of this and uh, this has been hotly debated. And I understand that sometimes that debate is, is shaped by the crucible uh, of the debate, but that's not all bad, you know, because uh, sometimes you got to turn up the heat uh, to get a better product. So, and of course, you know, the heat was turned up um, in the periods that, that you and I are talking about. So, and uh, well, you know, the heat is getting turned up now. So mm -hmm. I think, I think the more we can do to recover the past, the better, because then at least we can have a, a bigger set of ideas from which we can start thinking about the problems that we face and obviously some of the circumstances have changed um you and i i don't know if we want to have a conversation later about what i feel is the most significant difference in in our tribe and i'll say by our tribe i mean people that want to take political theology seriously but at least as far as as our tribe versus the other tribes uh i'm with you i think I think what we also need to do is remember that what we're doing when we're recovering Protestant theology is we're, we're also making it a more attractive academic project. And mm -hmm. so I think one of the things I found lately that's encouraging is how there are more young academics uh, and they don't even have to be academics. That's you know, there's a lot of downsides to doing things in an academic environment, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of younger people who are more willing to consider what the reformers said, uh, whether mm -hmm. it's about, you know, poor laws or whether it's about uh, the nature of republics or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, somebody like uh, Althusius. And I'll have to, have to tell you a Jeff, Jeff Hale story uh, in a minute, but uh, actually taking those guys seriously. And, mm -hmm. and of course, they were being taken seriously years ago. I mean, you know, Liberty Fund published uh, Politico, what, uh, oh, 20, yeah. 20, uh, oh gosh, it, I, I don't mean I don't have it in front of me, but I mean, it was, yeah. it was several decades. Yeah. So uh, this stuff has been out there, but as you know, there's only a little bit of secondary literature really mm -hmm. on it. And so most of us in uh, political theology, or excuse me, political theory, for example, have been paying attention to, you know, a Straussian pro seminar. Uh, uh, may, you know, we probably don't even read Hooker, even though there's a chapter on mm -hmm. Hooker and Strauss Cropsey. We do a little bit of Calvin and Luther or whatever, but it's pretty much, you know, Locke and Hobbes mm -hmm. and Rousseau. And, and I, I think there are chapters on like uh, um, uh, Grotius, but mm -hmm. nobody really, you know, pays attention to them. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, like they should. So, so this whole thing is just ready, you know, to, you know, it's just, it's just fertile ground. And uh, mm -hmm. I just scratched the surface in my book and I would just really like to see these projects continuing and expanding. And, and you're doing some of that at, at American Reformer. And um, uh, some of that is happening, of course, at uh, Davenant. And uh, 
what are some of the other institutions that people could go to to find some of this time and yeah that 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 may be i mean of course we're trying to push a little bit of that through some of the work here at, at hale um you know it's named after you know someone that uh, you, you know, is important. I mean, the, you know, Hale was only recently republished, uh, you know, Seitzma did the, the, the sort of yeoman's work on getting something that was probably unpublishable together, uh, you know, from his notes on natural law and everything into something really good and gave a, uh, you know, very informative and, and thoughtful introduction to that. It's worth, worth the price of the book, which is cheap. Um, same thing with Junius, you know, Mosaic Polity, super important work for for this stuff especially mm -hmm. with the engagement with the um uh you know theonomy even um you know these debates had already been had is what we all found out uh they'd, mm -hmm. they'd already been talked about um and so it, and then on the other side of things so it's not just theonomists who are you know, good friends co-belligerents uh, in the current context but in terms of the historical consistency and continuity you have on the other side of the battle, you know, the guys at Escondido who, um, you know, I just say that the, the sort of radical two kingdoms approach is almost default in Presbyterian and Baptist circles now. Uh, it's, they've just kind of won the day because they were only, the only people on the block for a while. Um, and what's always curious to me about that is those guys, you know, are typically, uh, in, including a lot of historical the theologians that aren't doing political theory, but they're, you know, very serious about historical continuity and confessionalism. But once you get to the parts of the confessions that don't jive with our current context, all of a sudden adjustments need to be made. And, you know, they probably weren't right in Semper Reformanda and, you know, so on and so forth. And so what I see a lot of younger guys doing, like you're saying, is, is saying, well, hold on, you know, that's not been sufficiently interrogated. And if we take them dead serious on justification or ecclesiastical authority, which is highly connected to the, the political theology, maybe we should give this a second look and take it seriously too, and at least play out for at bare minimum for a thought exercise. What would it be like if that was, they were dead serious, they were correct, no one's really refuted them. What does that mean? Yep. I, I think, I think that's, that's the reasonable question is, why we start with that and then we have a discussion about why that won't work uh in terms of prudence and prudence mm -hmm. is a principle right prudence is mm -hmm. a virtue prudence is not a sellout prudence is not a compromise uh, yeah. prudence is a principle and then and then we say well okay what is the the the, the reason that we we could not do that or what is the mm -hmm. other principled reason why we would not do that and so that's that's a much different the discussion than well that mm -hmm. happened in the past or well that's not consistent with uh you know religious liberty or whatever yeah. and and that that kind of leads to uh, we've got a few few things on the board and you you tell me where you want to go but but one is the the way in which the resources of the christian reconstruction movement did not provide that foundation and actually mm -hmm. may be working against project the resourcement project mm -hmm. that we're talking about another is this question of america and what exactly was what exactly happened in america regarding religious mm -hmm. liberty that's that's another good question um i did a review of um i don't know if you guys have done a review of it or, or not yet the uh i think it's called the old faith and a new nation oh yes who's the who's the author of that did you do it at the kirk center 
Yeah, I did it at the Kirk Center, yeah. and I yeah. thought that was a very interesting book. Yes, the and, review and, was very interesting. I haven't read the book yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the basic narrative here, and uh, it was really mind blowing uh, to to kind of encounter it because I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Is this? We all know there's this sort of primitive Christianity story, right? The the mm -hmm. the the guys in the Republic of Letters, like Locke, used it to say that the Christianity that existed in their time had all of these accretions mm -hmm. and uh, all of this, you know, theological nitpicking, you know, Locke is elusive on the, uh, you know, the, the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or whatever. And, uh, you know, the kind of things that Straussians uh, hammer, hammer uh, on, even though they don't understand theology, um, but they, they leverage it for uh, projects about, you know, Locke being, you know, Hobbesian or whatever, but, and, um, so you have this kind of primitive Christianity, but 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 what what we we quote unquote we did as uh, you know moderns or as uh, even as Americans is we we believed that something fundamentally changed with Constantine, right? Constantinianism, mm -hmm. and you know this is, this takes us back to the Escondido guys, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happened was there was something just fundamentally unChristian about this. And well, okay, uh, what happened since then? Well, it was all bad until, you know, um, the early 19th century or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, then, then this American project, it becomes the restoration of that, that primitive Christianity, that pre-Constantinian Christianity. And so all this stuff just kind of, just kind of gets, you know, wiped away. And, and then this becomes reinforced by uh, a neo-Calvinism and, uh, you know, Article 36 of the Belgian and, uh, mm -hmm. and Kuiper and all of that. And that's, that's where we, I think we find ourselves sometimes at odds with the previous resourcement project, which was the one in, um, in the, uh, you know, the set, the seventies, uh, eighties and uh, early nineties. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, th there's lots of threads we could pull on and, and all that. One of these is, you know, a, a focus, a focus of mine and, and several other people is, uh, you know, on the one hand, it, trying to pull back in the magisterial positions, which much, of, much of which is just general, right? It's political assumptions. It's how you come to the table then to work through prudence to develop policy or whatever you're going to do. But they're just very basic assumptions about the order of society, you know, these sorts of things. And it, it's, it's curious to me that people froth at that. Because like we're we're not saying yet you know what things we got to ban or something. It's just we're saying this is the the general posture that a, a good political theology should approach a scenario with, and then you work with what you what you got. I mean, almost all good political theology texts from the reformers say something to that effect. You know, you got to and and of course medievals did as well. Um, so you have that you're trying to bring back in, but then also. You know, part of the argument, it's hard to get very far, even with that stuff, dealing with 16th, 17th century stuff with a lot of uh, reformed but uh, guys, but that are opponents of uh, recovering some of these these positions. It's hard to get very far before they say, well, it's just completely impractical because insert America, everything is different. Everything changed mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. And so one of, you know, a part of the project that I think is very important is to say, OK, well, let's um, let's really take a hard look at what America was like. And you can't just begin in 76. You've got to 
you know, bring in the background because, uh, you know, it helps you understand and interpret any developments or changes that do happen. Much like if you leave a huge gap between Bullinger and Bucer and then Locke and Hobbes, you don't read Locke and Hobbes rightly. You can't read them as a Protestant. You read them as a 21st century modern, um, which is a huge problem. Um, but we're doing, you know, trying to do this with America. And so, you know, trying to describe for people, well, this this is the original constitutional order. This is kind of what we were doing here. And then we can look at uh, where things either got way better from their perspective or went off the rails. But otherwise, you're you're operating in a sort of vacuum. So, I mean, you've done a lot of that work. You know, how do you describe if you're giving a, let's say, a academic panel style elevator pitch, you know, so longer. <laughs> how do you how do you describe for people what America basically was, um, you know, in the in the founding period because of the colonial background? Yeah, I think the essential thing to remember and, you know, this was this this was said very clearly by Andrew Murphy uh, in his great book. Uh, it's about 20 years old. Um, Andrew's now at Michigan, which I'm just thrilled that he's there but you know he he was looking at the early religious he was looking at the religious liberty debates mm -hmm. toleration and liberty debates and then he was drawing some comparisons to liberalism and things like that and i the the, the important thing to me and i think he was right on this and then when i i did a chapter um in a, the cambridge companion of the first amendment and i did mm -hmm. on on the colonial uh debates and then um, well, not so much debates. I need to sort of back up because I'm going to wind up. I'm going to wind up becoming part of the problem rather than the solution, <laughs> which I'm going to offer in a second. And then one on Roger Williams and John Cotton for a, a John mm -hmm. Witte had a series on the jurists, and yeah. Mark Hall and Dan Dreisbach did that great, great Christian jurists uh, volume. Yes, Is, I talked um, talk to Mark Hall about that actually on the on the. Oh, file. good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, good. So, um, yeah, Mark's great, and uh, is um that a lot of this was really just motivated by circumstances. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can do when you have the proliferation of dissenting sects. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to Althusius, who, of course, I'm sure, you know, people want to read him as, you know, liberalizing some of the things that, that were happening earlier mm -hmm. in the 17th century and, uh, or uh, 16th century. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm fine with that. Uh, but the question is, did he liberalize it on principle or did he liberalize it on prudence? And when you get to right. the end of that chapter on ecclesiastical administration, he says, look, you know, if, if you're if you're going to threaten the polity, uh, don't do it because the polity mm -hmm. is the greater good. Mm -hmm. um, and and so there was always, you know, this principle of prudence. So when you have this prolifer proliferation of, of dissenting sects and establishment becomes unworkable, you just have to adjust. And uh I think I think the problem is, and this gets back to how political theorists operate. Historians don't operate this way, and that's why I think the mm -hmm. better political theorists are always doing history. Is mm -hmm. you're looking at the circumstances and how the circumstances uh, influence the change, rather than the great ideas. Mm -hmm. So you know you 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 know, and and we've talked about this before, but. You, you read a guy like Roger Williams, and, and uh, anybody who's interested in these debates should read Williams, they should read Cotton, and they should understand the historical background and everything else. But Williams and Rhode Island, you know, if you, were, if you were to see the volume of attention that was paid to Roger Williams, you would think 
that everybody was reading Roger Williams. You, you would you would yes. open up the papers of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or or uh, Roger Sherman or, or James Madison or whatever, and you would see all of these admiring references to Roger Williams and just how important he was. And they were all thinking about Roger Williams and and how the Baptists and the and the uh, whoever else you know all the dissenting, even the Presbyterians were dissenters, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, in Virginia that they were all you know I don't know uh, well they wouldn't have shrines but you know whatever they would you know <laughs> roger williams votive candles were were selling on the street in uh you know williamsburg on uh, duke of gloucester street you know in 1770 or whatever and and <laughs> having, I'm having too much fun with it and no nothing not Still, yeah yeah not a nothing there's nothing i mean nobody nobody cares and then you find out that the rest of the colonies including this is including the baptists and i and i talked about this in my chapter in um owen anderson and Breidenbach, uh michael Breidenbach's com first companion of the first amendment and the and the, the williams cotton essay in hall drysbach is um every it it was like rhode island do we really have to talk about that yeah they called it a sink uh into which the rest of the colonies <laughs> emptied, emptied their heretics that's right that's right uh a latrine, you know, rogues, rogues Island. The only thing mm -hmm. that Rhode Island is known for is, uh, I forgot, something like, um, I don't know, something like uh, something in fat mutton. I forgot what it was. So, <laughs> so it turns out that the story that we've reconstructed in hindsight about Roger Williams is simply mm -hmm. not true. But mm -hmm. I think the reason and that's a whole that's a whole other kind of say but but i think the reason that this became so important is we think that what happened was and this gets back to you know jefferson and i mean i understand why we do this and and you know it's not like i lose sleep over this and a lot of it is very salutary but we want to think that it was a big idea mm -hmm. and the big idea spread like mm -hmm. you know i don't know COVID or whatever uh, <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a little, a little and and somehow this spread, and then and then it changed everything. Rather right. than look, we can't hang all these Quakers, mm -hmm. and they just keep coming back. And you know, people people are are getting to know these people, and they're saying, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't so bad. You know, maybe they're not going to burn the polity down after all. You know, they stopped walking around naked, they stopped uh, they stopped interrupting you know the, the 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 services. So maybe maybe we can live with these people. So so that kind of stuff happens, and that I think is what really moves things. Mm -hmm. And then and you and you and I have talked about this a little bit before is. Even even by the time you get to the the revolution and the founding, you have had by this point a long pan Protestant history of about a century, where the Britain the, the Britons are beginning to coalesce around the idea of being Protestant, mm -hmm. and that then that Protestantism is really where you're going to find constitutional liberty and the rule of law. And I have an essay on this that was in American political thought where I talk about how. Um, um, 
these sermons that were preached during the, the French and Indian War could be used again in the revolution. And, and the reason mm -hmm. is that even though America had allied with a Catholic power, which is a substantial, you know, when you see in like 1775, no king, no popery. And then mm -hmm. a few years later, we're allied with the French, you know, who are a Catholic power. You have to say, well, what accounts for that? Was there a significant mm -hmm. shift in religious opinion? No, because popery meant tyranny. Mm -hmm. And and so Protestantism meant liberty, popery meant tyranny, and so long as we had the rule of law, and as long as these Catholics were willing to enable us to defend the rule of law against the 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 encroaching tyranny of uh, Whitehall mm -hmm. and all of that, then you know that was fine because the bottom yeah. line was really you know constitutional uh, government. So yeah. Anyway, well, I, and that's something that's something that even goes back. Um, if you, you know. <laughs> It, it goes back a, a significant degree into the 17th century, at least, where, um, you know, I just taught this course for Davenant with Mike Lynch, and we, we talked about this idea at length, um, and I think he's he's worked it into a, a very good book review that's, that's coming out of uh, Matthew Barrett's book. Um, mm. And the point is that Baxter, who's giving a sort of retrospective history of the Civil War, and then in the Holy Commonwealth, he's picking up these ideas as well. And, you know, Baxter, without, you know, we can't find any anyone contradicting him and saying, no, he's wrong about this. And then and then once you read him saying what I'm about to throw out there, the you, you kind of find the same ideas in other reformers, which is the real distinguishing mark of being a papist is the appeal to universal jurisdiction. And it, Baxter says, look, you could believe in transubstantiation and that's wrong, but it doesn't make you a papist. It, what makes you a papist is belief in, in papal authority, which is over the national sovereignty and the and the king and so on and so forth. And so the point is that the papism takes on, uh, and you see this in the founding with you know Samuel Adams writing about the the influence of papacy in in Massachusetts, and it's about the foreign threat, the foreign power that's contrary to Protestant. You know, I'm just going to say nationalism. They're not using the the word like that yet, sure, but sure, uh, yeah. Protestant. Um, you know, independence and sovereignty uh, on a on a more localized uh, basis, right? That does is not universal, and they give all their arguments for why universal jurisdiction is bad, both ecclesial and political. Um, and but the point is that you already have what you're describing taking on some life in the mid to late 17th century of like this is the real thing that the Reformation was all about. I mean, Baxter says that this is just the whole thing, and so you know it's it's natural then to say. Um, as circumstances change and you have a sort of importation of, uh, you know, like a, a, it's, it's like you've taken a microcosm of Europe's Protestantism and put it in a new place and they've, they've grown up differently together. Um, it's very natural for that idea to, you know, take on that progression in that form. And it's not just the pure natural sort of evolution of an idea, but it's reacting to circumstance and uh, coalescing around a sort of general Protestantism uh, with that paradigm in place makes perfect sense. Right, right. No, yeah, I think that's right. And that, and that, you know, it's interesting. I reviewed, you know, Yoram's book uh, years ago, mm -hmm. you know, Virtue of Nationalism. And, mm -hmm. and it, it, I think, I think what he has figured out and others have figured out is that that kind of universal jurisdiction uh that wasn't protestant right yeah 
and so I'm with you. I think it's I think it's fair to say that there is a we'll just call it a, a proto nationalism. Mm -hmm. If we if if we we're not thinking of this as like the modern ideology of nationalism, mm -hmm. but this notion of God marking out a particular people in a particular place entering into some kind of covenant if not some expectation of blessing and cursing based on faithfulness mm -hmm. um that 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 is something that you know protestants emphasize you see that in tyndale's uh mm -hmm. obedience of a christian man and what's uh what's interesting about that actually led uh, a class that i did in the spring with that is you know Tyndale is saying, you know, be obedient to the civil authorities uh, in a way that that will look different than, you know, the Protestants who are writing against, you know, Bloody Mary, mm -hmm. uh, not that not that long after. But what, what he's doing is he's 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 saying we have to be, be obedient to the civil to the civil authorities. But the problem is the papists are rebels. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're not respecting the civil authority. One reason we needed to respect the civil authority a as Christians, I don't know if we're thinking in terms of, you know, Protestants yet. And of course, we've got to do the Jonathan Clark thing and, and note that, you know, people weren't running around with their Protestant membership cards in their wallet. You know, they were <laughs> just talking about, you know, sort of restoring true Christianity. I, I, I used this line, by the way, we were talking earlier about the uh, the Munoz book. And, and I said, yeah. uh, I said, I felt that Munoz was you know Munoz at a couple of points in that book he uh um he he's he basically says the founders you know were classical liberals and there's this you know harm mm -hmm. principle and Jonathan Clark has this great quote where he says it makes about as much sense to talk about 18th century liberalism as, as it is, does to talk about the 18th century motor car so um, <laughs> so yeah. you're you're you're, you're you're reading a movement back in but right. anyway Tind Tyndale is worried that uh you know, we, we we need to see ourselves as a nation, and we're actually bringing the judgment of God. He actually takes the uh, covenant of Deut Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty eight, and he actually extends it to other nations as well. Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody agreed with that, but but anyway, that idea of nationalism, you know, that 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 uh, is getting kicked around more and more. Is we owe that to the Protestants, really? Mm -hmm. I I, yeah. I I don't see any reason why. I shouldn't think that that coming out of the age of of empires and uh, this universal jurisdiction of the papacy, I don't see why we would not mm -hmm. say we owe that to the Protestants, and that's probably one more mm -hmm. element of the recovery. Right, right, yeah. I mean, well, you you mentioned, and we we've we've been mentioning it the whole time, on and off. But you know, this idea of of well, it's it's Protestant covenant theology um, influencing uh, these very aspects we're talking about as well. Um, you know, over and against, and this is one of those things you were talking about at the very beginning, you know, unrecognized aspects of, of thought, Protestant thought um, in the makeup of uh, America uh, from the beginning. And the, you know, we can think of many uh, documents in American history as a, uh, as covenantal in structure and intent. Uh, I was just I just threw out some commentary recently at American Reformer on, on John Winthrop's arbitrary government described. And uh, I just noted at the bottom that, you know, I was reading this this version of his uh, letter, more or less, his treatise. And it's, you know, it's out of the Harvard classics. I mean, you used to have all these documents like educated mm. people would read. And you have the instruments of government from Cromwell and like all these very, they're very covenantal in many ways 
a lot of the documents uh, are structured, of course, the Mayflower Compact. And then you get over to something like the Declaration of Independence and you're like, huh, there's a lot of similarities in kind of the way it's thinking. And what it, you know, with this sort of uh, imposition of a later liberal articulation of contract theory, um, social contract theory and the state of nature idea that's attached to that, we can get into that as well. Cause I think it's, it's a, you know, someone like Patrick Deneen just has a very flat view of all the, all the thinkers that are, are not engaging that. Um, but this sort of, you know, covenantal aspect, which is, which is a communal idea gets you away from what, you know, Catholic critics later might want to say, you know, you're right, Glenn, it is all Protestantism that's created this. And that's why we have rampant individualism and licentiousness and all these other things, you know, so it's a sort of, uh, it's like a gritty or aggressive Charles Taylor thesis, you know, that, that they're bringing in. And, but the, the aspect that everybody's missing is sort of this covenantal consciousness that some people got right, you know, Perry Miller gave it a good shot. He, he doesn't understand uh, all the theology there, but he at least understands there's something going on with it. But most people just totally ignore this this aspect that's that's very central to Protestant, uh, you know, we might say true theology and then also political thought. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, the Deneen stuff is a hot mess. I, on, on that, on that, on that. Don't worry, point. we're not having him on. <laughs> we're not having him on. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Uh, David Corey had a piece called The Nine Waves of Modernity or something like mm -hmm. that. And I have a piece at Liberty Fund, which actually was written based on a talk that I gave where David and I were at the same event. It was an ISI honors event. And uh, uh, I some of the stuff in there uh, in the talk is, is funnier. I, I, I didn't put it in the Liberty Fund. It was something like... Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember what the joke was, but it was something about how how um, uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans don't know the difference between a bishop and a queen or something like that. And <laughs> I, I had some good jokes in there, but anyway, I wrote that up for um, for uh, Law and Liberty, and I and I and we published it. Um, I think it was on Reformation Day. This is two three hmm. years ago, and I actually got to, I got a lot of good attention from some really really uh, fine people. Uh, that saw that and liked it, and I felt really happy about that. But this notion that Protestantism opened the door for modernity, you know, the Brad Gregory stuff and uh, things like that, uh, it just is a really, really pernicious read because the founders, and this kind of gets back to the whole point about the medieval pre precedent and all of that, the founders were very, very conservative. Um, and a lot of it is just this, you were talking about Perry Miller, part, part of the problem, unfortunately, is that, is that, 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 early 20th century historiography um and that even goes back to the guys like you know nathaniel hawthorne uh, were you know wringing his hands about the puritans and all the rest so there's this historiography which is very conflicted which is that the the the, the puritans the pilgrims were doing something you know quite remarkable and uh they were all about religious freedom but at the same time they're bad guys because they were they were, you know, mm -hmm. persecuting people and, and all the rest. And we, we haven't, I don't know if we haven't, we haven't quite sorted that out. I mean, look at Tocqueville, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Tocqueville praising a New England. Of course, Tocqueville didn't get out much, unfortunately, you know, so <laughs> it's kind of, so much is New England. But 
you know, so much is, of that is owed, you know, to these early founders, like you said, and that probably explains why you have a guy like Winthrop, you know, in the Harvard Classics. But mm -hmm. nobody says, oh, Winthrop was a three theocrat. He didn't believe in liberty, you know, so, so mm -hmm. that's a good thing, right, that they're doing that. But at the same time, you know, they do have these reservations. And I, I think it's going to take a while before we, we really, really start to clean up this mess. And I should say, as you were talking, I, I said, let this time not pass before we acknowledge uh, Barry Shane. Yes, yes, indeed. Because Barry was, and 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 Barry, uh, somebody once described. Uh, I have to ask. I, I owe Barry an email, and I I should ask him about this. But somebody said something like, uh, uh, somebody said, "Who's Barry Shane?" And the, the answer was, uh, "Barry is a Jew who reads Calvin's Institutes." And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, Barry is just, Barry is, uh, he, you know, his, his book uh, from Princeton uh, was so contrarian at the time, so yes. contrarian that, um, that what, what mattered in the, in early America, and I mean, around the time of the revolution was Protestantism. And to your mm -hmm. point, all of this stuff, you know, whether it was Locke or, or whoever else they were reading, they were reading it in this Puritan context, mm -hmm. and you had these political sermons. There weren't a lot of them, you know, relative to all the sermons that were preached. But, you know, when they had them, you know, they were important, mm -hmm. and they were a centerpiece of public life. And this is where people were getting, you know, their political theology from. And, of course, they were all yeah. reading the Bible, and they were all doing these really political readings of the Bible. And so much mm -hmm. of the, uh, you know, the, the, the vernacular, the, the nomenclature, whatever you want to say, is all, is all in a biblical context. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is not, we're not going to turn into David Barton, you know, in the next five minutes. Uh, you know, be, because we talk about this again because of the Bible. I mean, we did we need to you know make sure we get the story straight. But uh, mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, and I I just think yeah be, because because of these problems, whether it's the the sort of the pro seminar of a few books for the academics, or whether it's mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know whether it's this kind of um, uh, you know Roger Williams founded America or. Uh, you know, what the Puritans were really about was just religious liberty or whatever. It's just going to take a long time to clean all this stuff up. But, mm -hmm. but uh, Lord willing, we're going to get there. And so, you know, we just, we just keep chipping away at it. Yeah. Yeah. Shane, I mean, Shane's book was another one that, I mean, I go, I go back to it all the time because I remember tidbits I need to go find. And it's, it's just a treasure trove, especially like you said, I mean, that was what, 93 or something. Mm, I think so. Put I think that out. Right. Yeah, I mean, very, a long time ago and, and has not gotten the attention, in my opinion, that it deserves. Um, and he kind of just goes at everybody um, in, in that book. And it's it's fantastic. And that's the uh, for the listeners, the myth of individualism or myth of American individualism. I can't remember mm -hmm. what the exact is, but um, great book. And you can you can get it relatively for cheap now. Um, but yes, the, the that fundamental idea that he, you know, the baseline you need to start from is uh, an understanding of Protestantism, the, the way it thought of communities, the way it thinks of political authority, the way it thinks of the relationship between church and state, so on and so forth. Baseline is Protestantism, and then you work from there based on, uh, you know, good historical work of the, the adjustments that may or not be made. But if you don't have the baseline, you can't really understand how they would receive. You can't do good reception history. Um, and this is and you kind of I mean, you see this. It, uh, 
I guess it's inexplicable to some of our quote unquote classical liberal friends. Um, but, you know, I always want to ask people, well, well how come, um, you know, Paine's common sense is generally well received and then his age of reason is like thrown in the dustbin? Why why do they hate the second book? If they're just all on board with everything Payne and Jefferson are doing, you know, Jefferson almost gets uh, politically destroyed for endorsing Age of Reason. Um, it's like, why why do they have that discretion? What's going on? It's like, well, the, the first text is basically in the style of a sermon. It's heavy in, in scripture, and it's dealing with a pretty narrow issue in terms of, of authority at the time that not everybody goes along with, but they think there's there's some useful stuff there, and they are allowed... Um, you know, as as Miller describes in the first volume of New England Mind, um, they do have this eclectic kind of ability to pick and choose what they think is good and what's not. So you're allowed to do that. It's not a full endorsement. And then when you have the garbage, you know, French Revolution style coming to you, they, they have no truck with that. You know, there's, there's no patience for it. Um, and that's just kind of the regular reception on the ground. And then you got to go through and look, well, you know, what's it look like? What is it like to read, uh, you know, John Locke? as a, you know, essentially Puritan or Puritan condition New Englander in the 1760s. You know, what does that look like? Um, so it's just, a, it, you know, all that work, that's background work to even, uh, that's why I always say, like, we, we probably know almost nothing uh, relative to how much ink has been spilled over the founding. You mean as a sort of a percentage of all of the yeah. work that's been done yeah. on the American founding, how much of it has taken into account yeah. uh, the Protestant uh, context. Right. And yeah, no, no, I, th I think that's right. And uh, unfortunately, when you have this explosion of academic work and publication and scholarship, right, in the 20th century, unfortunately, and this kind of gets back to the question of resourcement projects generally. So, so what was going on in the early 20th, mid 20th century, as far as recovering reform theology, as far as recovering works like Althusius, and mm -hmm. no one's asserting here that everyone was reading Althusius, you know, this is not like Hegel, you know, <laughs> or, or something like that, you know, these stories of a Kierkegaard, you know, being upset by, you know, everybody's reading Hegel. It wasn't like everybody's reading Althusius, but, but what we, what we can't do is, for example, overclaim the influence of bio like Althusius, but what we can see in Althusius very clearly is the systematic working out of ideas mm -hmm. that were in the air and the water, right? Mm -hmm. So there's very little recovery of people like Althusius. Uh, the only people who are probably working on the continental stuff or the British stuff in terms of political theology is it's, that's happening over in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And Americans are still very much taken with America and this kind of Whig history, right, that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and And so there's this explosion of scholarship, but they can't get away from it. And so mm -hmm. when you look at, for example, uh, you know, Balin's first collection of documents, which I guess, right, there were supposed to be other volumes or something, but uh, mm -hmm. Mayhew is the first one and it's 1750. I mean, it's before, yeah. it's before the, you know, the Stamp Act crisis and all the rest. And of course, Adams calls this a catechism of liberty, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, well, okay, well, Mayhew is up to something Lockean. And you say, 
No, because Romans 13 had been debated, uh, not even really debated, but it had yeah. been exegeted in this particular way, which is conditional obedience. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Daryl Hart. Uh, <laughs> For 200 years. Mm -hmm. There's nothing Mayhew was saying that anyone in the audience who knew anything about how Romans 13 had been understood previously by Protestants would say, oh my goodness, he's baptized Locke's revolutionary social contract theory. Yeah. No one is saying it. I mean, you can read the Vindicia Contra Tyrannos, and, you know, mm -hmm. he says in there that, you know, all men, uh, you know, basically being equal and masters of themselves, why would they give up this freedom that they have? I mean, it's almost like reading Locke word for word. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm not saying that Locke necessarily read the Vindicia. I, I mean, pre probably did. I mean, Adam certainly thinks it's important in the development of Anglo-American constitutionalism. Uh, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that, you know, that Locke is, you know, sort of cribbing or rewriting the Vindicii or whatever, but, but this is, but the Vindicii is a reflection of a lot of Protestant ideas. You know, you can think of that as a kind of bookend, or you could think of John Ponnet or Christopher Goodman, or you could think of mm -hmm. Calvin's Institutes, or you could think of, you know, all the things that Bullinger doesn't have nice things to say about <laughs> tyranny either, right? Right. I mean, right. I, mean I have some of that in my book, and you've talked about that too. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just, it's crazy to to have these sort of bookends of Protestant, you know, to go from like, um, I don't know. We'll say Ponet, right? That was was that fifteen. Oh, put me on the spot. Fifty? Is it fifteen fifty fifty three? I can't remember. I should. This is, this is why I, I need younger guys around me, time, and so you can help me keep <laughs> I know, track I don't, of all. I don't have the, uh, the the date, but yes, I mean it's it's around that time, right? It's mid sixteenth yes. century, right? So you're you're talking about essentially two hundred years of Protestant theology. Now, it, let's let's also be clear here: this was not biblicist. And mm -hmm. so, as David Seitzma, is it Seitzma, Seitzma? I say Seitzma. I think that's okay. right. I've never asked him. You look at, you know, that, that you know, David is David is great, and his yeah. stuff is great. And and so, I always try to say this: that there's, you know, Protestants are not doing something new, right? They owe mm -hmm. a lot to the medieval constitutionalists. You know, there's this whole debate in the journals years ago about whether the Vindicii is is really how much it really owes to Protestantism and how much it owes. Of course, as, as you know better than I do, some of these, uh, you know, uh, Huguenot or Huguenot works <laughs> are so dependent on Roman law and medieval constitutionalism. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't mean that they're entirely faithful to those ideas either, right? right. In other words, their, their goal is not to just take this and, and use it, but they do modify it or there are notable omissions or whatever. But yeah. they owe so much to this and they owe so much, right, to the classics and to the contemporary mm -hmm. sources and so on. So we're not saying that the Protestants do something that's new. We're simply mm -hmm. saying that there is something in which these ex these pre-existing things are contextualized by the Reformation, deployed in the Reformation, modified by Protestant authors that are mm -hmm. deeply uh, central to the Anglo-American constitutional project. Yes. 
Yes. And you see that kind of systematic work in a guy like Althusius, or you see it in a more popular context in a guy like Mayhew. Right, right. And even in, I mean, everyone, you know, wants to, to do, a, you know, Rutherford. I mean, if you read Lex Rex, I mean, the amount of Jesuits he's pulling, uh, mm-hmm. looking to the conciliarist councils, right? So mm-hmm. Basel and Constance and these places, that sort of time period and pulling, um, you know, this sort of, corporate Roman theory of, of Congress, you know, it's, it's a sort of medieval Catholic congregational theory that's, that's coming out at that time based on the recovery of certain Roman law texts that's being argued by the conciliarist, you know, uh, you know, back then. And he, he pulls some of those uh, things that are useful and, you know, so it's all, it's all mixed in and you kind of have to trace various threads to, to understand it. And of course, all those things, canon law and Roman law are embedded in the English common law. And so you have the same, uh, you know, concepts you're able to, to grab and, and are really, um, you know, in many cases unaccounted for because they're just so deeply embedded in the, the intellectual milieu, as they say. Um, so these things, you know, get provided all with texture. And like you said, it gets you away also from a sort of purist understand ideological understanding of the progression of ideas uh, in practice uh, because the influences are vast you're sort of allowed to uh, use whatever you i mean i always say it's the great thing about being a protestant is you are allowed to use all the catholics you want but catholics really don't have that luxury because uh, you can't go around citing protestants for your theory otherwise <laughs> you're kind of seeding the field to them but the protestants are able to mine you know the egyptians uh, all they want um so anyway, this, you know, that's, it's all very helpful. I think sort of um, direction for people doing some of this, this resourcement work is it really does require, you know, broad, broad knowledge and reading. And, and really you can get that through, you actually have to trace sources. I mean, the amount of times you find people citing a work uh, for a particular idea, and then you go trace the sources in that actual work and you find out the under, the understanding was not quite there. Uh, that, that happens all the time because just very cheaply done. Um, but there are good, you know, there are people doing good work out there. So Glenn, you know, we're, we're coming up on time. So as we're wrapping up, tell people some of the things besides your own book, of course. Um, and we've mentioned Shane and you've mentioned several others, but what are, what are books that are helpful both on the magisterial side and the, you know, the American context to set the record straight as it were? Uh, not a question I was prepared for, um, (laughs) I, we've mentioned I, a bunch already, but we, you know, any, yeah, any others? yeah, we've we've mentioned a bunch already. You 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 sort of get get you know start get us started, and I'll. Uh, yeah, and I I'll, think I'll... of I think of you know, uh, one one great book in my opinion is is Harl Hopful, however you say his name's book on uh, the uh, Christian okay. polity of of John Calvin. Uh, that's an old book, you know, Cambridge Press, but probably from the eighties that that i don't see mentioned all that much um you know and i'm, I'm talking primary sources as well i mean everyone should re- you mentioned bollinger I and mean, you need to read the you, you need to read bollinger um you need to read butzer um you know and if you want to go uh, something helpful too is like you know go actually read aquinas uh i mean he has things to say about there's potential justification for tyrannicide you know there it's, that's not a new you know some kind of crazy yes. Presbyterian idea that comes around because it's convenient in the, when they need to get rid of a steward every now and then that's, that's a, you know, deeply embedded in the tradition, the sort of analysis Now you can quibble with whether they do it right, but it's there. So 
um, as well as on on prudence. You know, all of them, all of you, that was mentioned earlier of how you conduct yourself. This is this is a uh, you know intricate to political sort of analysis, and it's it's back in Aquinas as well. Is it uh, is it should we should we give give the big plug for Althusius here? We should, of course, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, and and the the good the good news is that Liberty Fund abridged Althusius, but it's still I, maybe it might still be a slog for some. But I would say that the chapter on ecclesiastical administration mm -hmm. is really really a re, a, a, a a really good treatment of what people were thinking mm -hmm. in a time when uh, we probably uh, have assured ourselves they were thinking something entirely different. Right. And that gets to differences again between us and the Roman Catholics on conscience mm -hmm. um, and things like that. So uh, uh, tell Jeff he owes me another shiny nickel uh, now that I've said something, when he invited me to come speak, yes. my lecture online, he said, he said, if you say good things about Althusius, I'll give you a shiny nickel. And then when, when he, when he gave me my envelope, there was a shiny nickel taped. Wow. A man of his the, word. The, <laughs> front of the envelope. And I, you know, I just, I just laughed about that uh, so much. And, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I think I, I'm not thinking books, but I'm thinking, if we're thinking primary sources that are reasonably mm -hmm. digestible, mm -hmm. Althusius on Ecclesiastical Administration, which you can read online at Liberty Fund, um, his Politica, mm -hmm. and uh, Calvin at the end of the Institutes, mm -hmm. uh, that's oh, cool. you know, the, lesser, the lesser magistrate, as well as a very salutary warning against, you know, acting uh, against tyrants without some reflection on how this may be a judgment of God. Um, mm -hmm. John Ponnet's A Treatise on Political Power, which I yeah. think is better than Christopher Goodman. Goodman's just all over the place. Yeah, Goodman's, uh, uh, Goodman is, is awful to read, in my opinion. Yeah, I was working on that for a paper recently, and I remember how much it drove me crazy and how much I regret having my students read it. Um, <laughs> but the, the Ponnet... Uh, the Ponnet is is abridged in an online PDF that was a paperback, apparently published by doo -doo -doo -doo, the Cato Institute. Hmm. The problem is they took a lot of the a lot of the good stuff out of it because of they they wanted to you know read libertarianism I guess back into into Ponnet. Mm -hmm. But we'll we'll take what we can get. Um, you mentioned uh, the Tyndale Vindicate. already, of, of course. Yeah, the Vindicate. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Vindicate Contraterranos. You know, well worth reading, and and that is now out in a cheap publication of the the uh, one of the early English translations by Canon. Although the um, the Garnet from uh, Cambridge, I think, is better, and the intro is really, really, really good. Mm -hmm. and the notes are really, really, really good. So actually, I think Jim Stoner told me that he has assigned. The Vindicia Contrachernos to hmm. some of his classes at uh, hmm. at LSU. I don't know if he's using them in the pro seminar with the grad students or whether he's using an undergrad. But I mean, you look at you look at a development like that, and I love Jim. I've known Jim forever, but I I doubt that people that I would consider of Jim's status among political theorists in America have yet made that jump to yeah. the Vindicia Contrachernos. And the fact that he's yeah. assigning that, I think, 
you know, to guys like you and I, it's like, well, of course, I mean, Adam, John Adams thinks it's important. Why, why mm -hmm. wouldn't we read it? Mm -hmm. And it was republished, right? It was, I think it was yep. republished in the English civil war. It was republished mm -hmm. when we were having our own crisis, you know, here in the 1760s, 1770s, but mm -hmm. yet, again, somehow it's just, and, and, and the significance of a text like that is you just can't read Locke backwards. You know, you can't right. say that, uh, uh, Brutus, the uh, pseudonym of the author, mm -hmm. was Lockean. <laughs> it's just, right. It's just, it right. doesn't make sense. Well, some so, people do, even though you can't. Some people still do. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and we're just we're just hoping that that that's you know that sort of fades away. But but I, I would really encourage you know you you're doing some recovery stuff at American Reformer. Um, Brad is doing uh, stuff at Davenant. I'm sure that that kind of thing mm -hmm. will continue mm -hmm. um some of the essays are uneven but you know the uh, protestant social thought i have an essay in there in revolution and i think some of the essays in there like there's an essay on on a suicide and i think is particularly mm -hmm. good i think stephen wedgworth has one on abortion but mm -hmm. even you know even kind of moving out from some of the, the big political questions but even getting into some of the social stuff like brad has one on uh, you know poor laws and i think the point mm -hmm. of all of this is to help people to understand that you know, there was, for example, a pro-life. Uh, hello, Is that, was that enough anachronism for? Uh, <laughs> there, there was, you know, a quote-unquote pro-life movement, you know, before. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we say, uh, oh, uh, you know, well, we're pro-life, that means we're against, you know, capital punishment or we're pro-welfare or whatever. It's like, no, no, right. no, no. There was yeah. a there was a very distinct focus on this question of the humanity, uh, mm -hmm. right of the human fetus, and. Uh, mm -hmm. This goes back a long time or, um, yeah. you know, uh, you know, property rights. Well, you know, property rights didn't mean that uh, the Protestants were necessarily averse to, uh, you know, be, being concerned mm -hmm. about the poor or things like that. So I think mm -hmm. I think it's learning how to think like a Protestant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what we're talking about. And that doesn't mean we don't overlap, like you said, with the Catholics. I'm thinking about Rutherford and John Coffey's uh, statement that Rutherford yeah. used, what did he say, 500 or 800 different yeah. sources and lecturers. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we're, we're you know, eschewing the classics, you know, the Greeks mm -hmm. and the Romans, and we, we want to pay close attention to what was going on in the medieval period. But but we want to we wanna read these sources as the Protestants read them we want to read them as a Protestant's read them, and we want to mm -hmm. start with that as a basis of a conversation, because otherwise, we're just you know we're just something else, right? Um, right. And 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 even if we're going to say, well, we want to be liberals, then the question is, what does liberalism owe to the Protestants? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is there a kind of liberalism that we should be promoting, and a kind of liberalism that we should be absolutely running away from, like? Uh, mm -hmm yeah you know make make conciliarism great again i was thinking about there, that with, uh, yeah francis yeah, they, i don't know if that's if that's as galvanizing as make america great again but we, we could just say it's it's the same you know it, it's just what it means um you know it's, um yeah i mean i i think that you know those are all all great sort and readily available that's the the frustrating thing i understand that there's there's many things that are still being translated and, and have been, but this is really picked up. Um, but even a lot, I mean, I think all the sources you just mentioned, I mean, they've been available for 30 years or more for, for average readers. 
I, and, I think that's probably right, and but they're still ignored by large swaths of the academy. And the three books that you mentioned, or at least two of them, that were published by Acton, mm -hmm. and I think they started out as translations for the journals, the Journal of Markets and Morality. No, that's that. I think that's stuff. Well, they've done that with many things. I mean, I think. Um, uh, let's see, Zanke was that way. You could read mm -hmm. the Zankius translation, which is, you know, I think they focused on the natural law a bit, but there's more in there. Um, that was definitely in markets and morality before it was put out in anything bigger. And I think they've done, yeah, like they've done that with uh, several others uh, before they become full books. And then they're like $9, you know, the book. And they, they always have great introductions. The the Hemingson, uh, you know, introduction is great in the whole text. And so is the uh, for for all of them, the the Althusius one, the Hale one. We got to of course mention Hale again, and uh, you know the Junius. Uh, all very very accessible and easy, but but done you know by by real scholars, annotated so on and so forth. Um, and then you know supposedly everyone reads Lex Rex, but I think they only read the first chapter maybe, and the you know the rest of it's just totally ignored. Um, and when you you know the other reassessment, I would love to see. You know I'm I'm not big on Locke, not because of contemporary debates. I just don't enjoy most of his, most of his writing that much, but um, you know, it's, it's a thing of like, if, if you read these other sources and then you go back to the ones that the classical liberals say, these are definitive, it does change your assessment of them. And I mean, I even think this of Hobbes, when you read the latter part of Leviathan that no one reads, that's mm -hmm. all an ecclesiastical polity, that's a very different book than what it's usually promoted as, or, or you're told that it represents. And if you read the whole thing and then you read it in light of a sort of Protestant context that's in this uh, sort of development and debate for for you know over a century at that point, um, it, it just change it just changes the flavor of the book in my opinion. There's much more useful stuff there than people give it credit for. Uh, another interesting uh, little project would be to read Locke's two tracts. Mm -hmm which were not, they were not published. So, you know, you always have to put a little asterisk on the unpublished stuff, but in Locke's two tracts, uh, you know, he's talking about Adiaphora, he's talking about mm -hmm. the conscience. Then you get the, the essay on toleration and then you get the letter. Mm -hmm. and, and just in that short space of time, you're getting two different understandings of the conscience and toleration from the mm -hmm. same author. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's so much going on in the 17th century. I mean, this, this is a debate among Protestants. This is the point that I was, was trying to make uh, with the Munoz book in another context is if you're not talking about conscience and you don't understand the rich discussion of conscience that precedes the uh, project of a, of a religious liberty, whether it's in America or it's in Britain, there's no way you can understand what's going on. You simply mm -hmm. cannot talk about natural right mm -hmm. uh, and not talk about conscience. And, you know, mm -hmm. this goes back again to Cotton and Williams and what an informed conscience is and what the conscience is, you know, when it is misinformed. But as Calvin says, and I, this is one of my, we'll come back to my book, all my shameless self-promotion during this, <laughs> uh, we'll come back to the book, is uh, I really like my discussion of conscience in the book. If you mm -hmm. had to say, you know, what would you say is one of the best parts of the book? It's that discussion of conscience because we want to read Calvin, for example, on the civil magistrate, and we should, but we also need to read that part on the conscience. And so that mm -hmm. conscience, which is 
which is, you know, our accountability to God is so important. And that's how we understand all of these other things. And so if you're going to say, you know, we're going to deny people the ability to to pray, you know, corporately or public events or things like that, um, I don't know. Well, we're straying into mm -hmm. another topic. I'm going to shut up about that, and we're just going to no, go back good. to to how how great the Resourcement Project is. How people can <laughs> you know join that Resourcement Project, even if only mm -hmm. to you know participate in enjoying the fruits of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I know you're working hard on that at, at American Reformer, and and I've got things that you know I'm kind of. Uh, chipping away at. I'm trying to think mm -hmm. of the last thing. I do have something that'll be coming out at Davin, and I have no idea when, uh, because they sort of trickle the stuff out at Commonwealth. But actually, mm -hmm. reading uh, some of the essays from the house churches in China, mm -hmm. and how they, uh, you know, how they're approaching the tyranny that they're under, and mm -hmm. what struck me about that is just how much they lack this context of the lesser magistrate hmm. and maybe as we think about what's going on in texas or some of the things mm -hmm. that we're concerned about in the future maybe one of maybe one of the most important things that we need to recover is the is the idea of the lesser magistrate move mm -hmm. away from this idea of the mob and the individual and that mm -hmm. whole individualist conception of rights which can be very very dangerous you know when things mm -hmm. heat up and really think about how the magistrate is the one who's supposed to be rewarding good and punishing evil. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that's just the guy at the top, but that also means that mm -hmm. magistrates are able to correct other magistrates. And hopefully that will bring some, some, some sort of, you know, rule of law, uh, sense, sensible thinking to some of the, mm -hmm. some of the hot topics that are going on right now. Yeah. A really good book I've been recommending on that topic, or it, it's sort of, an adjacent topic, I guess, but it gets at that is that um, Hendrickson's Immortal Commonwealth is a recent mm -hmm. uh, addition to this type of resourcement. It's a short book, but it is it is somewhat dense, I guess I should say. But, um, you know, it gets at the consideration you raised earlier that the, the paramount thing for the magistrate is, you know, the peace, order and stability of, of the Commonwealth, its longevity. And you have to, you know, you can't, uh, if you want to do other things you have to you have to be alive first you can't die um, and so when lesser magistrates are faced with the destruction of their polity in a very real sense uh, you know that's the time uh, you should start thinking about what correctives need to be made even to the supreme magistrate and then we could get into you know if we have more time we could go into into what federalism is supposed to do and mm. uh, that's something that I, I wish um, everyone all americans but mainly protestants would get more serious about is really understanding you know that you can get this beginning with althusias and move on uh to our particular structure of polity and what that means for sovereignty and the delegation of authority um it's it's a you know it's a it's a discussion that some people i think uh where was it temple university were trying to have a while back um and i ne i never saw it you know get as much traction as it probably should have but uh, that, that's another fruitful area of resourcement to uh, to think about the, the structure of the polity we've inherited and how it's supposed to function, because then that should be informed by the the lesser magistrate doctrines also. Um, but much more we could we could unpack when we could go on. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on to talk about these things and uh, sort of hopefully put some some brain worms in people that they can't shake so that they go go forth and conquer the resourcement for us. And uh, more much more work is needed. 
yep, yep. It's it's a it's a it's a real pleasure. Uh, we 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 could do this for hours. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how interesting that would be to listeners, but we we yeah we could do this <laughs> for hours. And uh, and I'm I'm easy to find. Uh, you're easy to find. And um, I I do hear from people from time to time, and and I and, you know enjoy that. I'm sure you do too. And you know what we really want is we we want people to be informed by these resources and and have them enrich this this discussion, lest it be as you said at the beginning, uh, just turning into either a lot of cliches or what really comes down to uh, some variant of uh, pietism or. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess I'd call it dissenter political theology as opposed to the magisterial tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and and anyway. Yeah, or, or get into the, you know, um, it's it's bad. I, I mean, I, I always appreciate Mark David Hall has said this multiple times. You know, people like David Barton, who he's obviously providing some corrective to, um, some of their instincts are right, right? They know something is wrong mm -hmm, with the mainstream mm -hmm. narrative. But mm -hmm. they do it in such a, I'm just going to say, hokey and flippant way that it, 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 uh, the rest of us that are trying to do it more seriously, I'd just say, are, uh, you know, it, it puts us at a disadvantage. You're kind of, it, it hurts in the long run, even though the, what they, what they're kind of instinctually going after is correct. So it, it's not all bad, and you, you know, a lot of people who imbibed that uh, have some good, good ideas from, from you know, reading Barton and the, that kind of clan. But it's it's not well done, and I think it can be done much much better, both through good sources um, and just being serious about uh, the, the sources that you do have. You know, you don't have to turn everybody into your Sunday school teacher for them to be venerable or to have good ideas. <laughs> and that's basically what he tried to do with Jefferson. You know, he's the, the the idea of making this you know spending an entire book trying to convince everyone he was totally orthodox is just bizarre to me, and it's not necessary. You don't need that. Um, so I think, I think better correctives are being offered. Um, but you know, at the same time, I like the resourcement, um, uh, in its posture uh, insofar as it engages publicly with sort of lay readers to, uh, you know, not be totally, not, not totally castigate, uh, the, what I would say is a, a convention, some conventional narratives and filial piety that still exist on the right or in conservatism, which are at, at bottom good. They just need to be well-directed. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. So I could now talk for another five minutes or 10 minutes or a hundred minutes, but you want to wrap it up. So I'm going to, <laughs> you're I'm blaming me. Well, and, you got uh, the shiny nickel story in. So I, I assumed that was the cue to, to begin to wrap up, you know, that, that's really what we're here for. Yeah. I, I'll say this. I'm excited for what you're doing, for what Jeff is doing. I'm excited to see this at new St. Andrews. And I just, mm. I like the energy there and if we can just get that energy going in all all the right directions then mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be better off so i'm happy about yeah. that well, we appreciate that and and uh, i should tell everybody to go watch uh glenn's speech which is online that he gave at new st andrews not that long ago now it was, it's it's a really fun and uh, and provocative and but also informative uh, talk he gave when he came out to New St. Andrews. So people should go check that out. I don't remember the title of it off the top of my head. Glenn, do you? Uh, I don't know what it's listed as online. If people search Glenn Moots and, and New St. Andrews, they'll probably find it uh, on YouTube. But uh, so we, I mean, we appreciate your your support and kind words for what we're trying to do and participation in 
in all that by uh, by, by your own work. Um, it's it's very fruitful. As I said, everybody should, if you haven't read Politics Reformed, you should read it. Uh, it, it will set you off on, on many tracks, uh, all, of, all of them good uh, towards what we're talking about. It'll give you you know, at bare minimum citations of other other things to go read um, to understand the uh, reformed theology and, and uh, you know, reformed sort of political thinking. And then also, you know, even in the American context as well uh, to, yep. to set you straight. Uh, and, and people are doing some of this. You know, we're, we're going to have Ben Crenshaw on at some point. He's doing that. You mentioned Mayhew earlier. You know, he's doing great work on that. Um, recovering, you know, I've tried to do some of this looking at, uh, you know, the sermon medium, like you mentioned earlier, that uh, Sandoz kind of started everybody on that. We should we should mention him, um, and it's it's progressed, which I which I like to see. Just reading those those sermons will will totally change your outlook on on thought at the time in the 18th century. Yeah, see, that's so. What we could do is we could say, speaking of sources, if we want to do the American stuff, we could say the Sandoz collection. Yeah, S A N D O Z, yeah. which is online, but also is cheap from Liberty Fund, mm -hmm. and then um, the the volumes that they published on the uh, sources. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, the sources that the uh, is it the Founders Constitution? Well, they're in the Founders Constitution, but uh, they're also in. Um, uh, it was it Lutz Heinemann. There's yeah, Lutz, yeah. Heineman oh, collection. we have to mention Lutz, yeah. Right, which is also cheap. You know, you can get these two paperback volumes, you know, for 15 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. And yeah. that contains political sermons too. But Ellis, uh, I, I have a review of Ellis's uh, collection at Liberty Fund, we, you know, like one of the anniversary uh, reviews mm -hmm. that they did. And Ellis did this. Now, he did it at the Huntington Library, so you can't feel too mm -hmm. bad for him because he got to spend time out there. But, But a lot of this was him going through, you know, hard copy sermons, reading mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of hard copy sermons and deciding which ones were gonna go were gonna go in the collection. Mm -hmm. So oh the title of the talk is Reconsidering Religious Establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that was the uh, talk we did, there. We didn't even that. get into establishment. We should have we should have done that too. We'll we'll have to do another part. We'll have to do well, this again. First rule of show business, always leave them wanting more. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I think we've done that. I think the, the appetite is is strong at this point. People are going to be we, clamoring for more Glenn Moots. A regular show, Timon. A regular show would, would not be a bad idea. Time. We, could, we could fill that up. Timon and Glean. <laughs> That's my idea. Oh, man. We, be, we better close it down. This, this is All getting right. out of hand. It's getting out, way out of hand. Um Glenn, Glenn, yes, go read and listen to Glenn's stuff. Uh, it, it's always entertaining, which is which is a rare, rare quality in historical work. But it is it is serious too. So people should go go get the book and then and then follow. Uh, again, you've done a lot more popular kind of engagement recently. Um, public discourse, law and liberty, like you said, you've written several good essays recently there that that will be helpful to people. So go check that out. Glenn is social media less, so you cannot find him on Twitter or any of the other things you have to get more determined than that to get the good content from Glenn um, again to keep yeah. <laughs> would have banned me by now I just saved myself the trouble I just banned myself that's right, that's right. <laughs> thanks time and thanks again for having me